Let me pray for us. Go for the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, that you do reign from shore to shore, uh, that you are in charge of our lives, that you are at work even now in, in the midst of each one of us and even corporately as we, as we gather today, that your promise is that you'll be with us, that you will change us, that you'll bless us, that you'll do what we most need in our lives to, um, to come to that conclusion of our need for you. And so as we look at your word, we pray that you would use it, use it in a powerful way in, in our lives, in our minds, our hearts today, that you would change us and, and conform us to the image of your son. Um, thanks that you have called us together. Thanks that we can have a great hope that, that you will do this work that we most need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, Genesis 32, I'm making a filling in for Bill this week and uh, decided to, to take a little bit of a detour uh, from Galatians where some of the passage I've been looking at partly because I wasn't sure what to do with the next passage. So I'm doing this, uh, this passage from Genesis 32. A few years ago, I, I used it for a talk that I gave at one of our men's breakfasts. And just really enjoyed it and thought I'd kind of go back through it and take a look at it and, and see what it has to say to us today as we, we look at what it means to wrestle with God. And we see an amazing picture here of God coming to Jacob and the way that God relates to us as well. So Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. The same night he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name is no longer, shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen, the, seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip's socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. A little commentary there on the end on what they ate and what they didn't eat. This is a picture for us of, of God meeting Jacob at a very pivotal time in his life. That if we could go back to the story, we see that God's been at work in Jacob's life up to this point, and he has set up this moment for the exact purpose to, to do a work that he intends to do to, to change him. Jacob, this is a pivotal moment for us in our lives. Uh, it's easy by history to look back. To, we have a vantage point to look at events in history that are pivotal. We can look and see, okay, this event, this was important, and hindsight gives us that. You can look in history or look in wartime. You can look in political races. You can look at technology and development. You can look at 
sports, and you can find plays or points that were pivotal that, such that everything kind of turned on that one point, that one event. I had the opportunity to be at the, the game on Monday night at the Jayhawks game and the, the Baylor game. And, and if, if you've gone to one of those games, they, they open the whole thing with what seems to be a kind of call to worship. It's kind of a, a video that they play, you know, of great scenes from the history. And if the crowd needed to be kind of, you know, fanned in any kind of more enthusiasm, this one just sends them over the, over the top. And, of course, everybody's up and cheering, getting ready to worship and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and of course, the, 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 the point at which everybody just goes nuts in this generation is Mario's shot, you know. And you go, wow, you know, you, you're like, that was so cool. But it struck me on Monday night that, I have to be reminded that shot wasn't a winning shot. It was a shot that just tied the game. They could have lost the game for all we know, but it was a pivotal point in the game. Of course, they won. We know all that story from there. But, but even in our own lives, there's, there's events, there's situations that are pivotal for us. When we look back, we go, boy, boy, I could have gone that way or that way as a result of that. And these pivotal points oftentimes are breaking points in our lives. They're points at which we come up against, smack up against something that's immovable in which any strength that we have, anything, ability we have to change the outcome is completely shown to be weakness, shown that we can do nothing at all with it. And God, by his grace and his sovereignty, brings us into these these breaking points. And it's in those times, it's in those places that our whole lives might pivot and the whole shifting and changing takes place there in a way that we could have never imagined beforehand. This is one of those moments for Jacob. This is one of those moments as he comes face to face, though he doesn't know it for a while, with God. And God meets him and wrestles with him here at this place. Up to this point, Jacob's life was really characterized by his name, that he was, he was a cheater, he was deceptive in the way that he lived. And he had really been, it appears, just playing games with God throughout the course of his life. And here at this point, God confronts him and says, I will no longer play games with you. I'm not going to play games. I've brought you to this exact point because I want to do something in your life. I want to bless you. I want to transform your life. And I want to mark you so that you will not forget this moment throughout the course of your life so that you'll understand my purposes. And as we look at this pivotal point in his life, I want to ask a couple of questions, a couple of things I think will be helpful for us to go to see how God operates in the life of people that we can glean from this story, this beautiful, mysterious, ambiguous account of of God meeting with Jacob. And the first thing I want to ask is, how is it that God works? What's the patterns that God uses? What's the pattern that he works in Jacob's life that we can learn from. And the second one is, what's he doing with the pattern? What's his methods? And then what's he, what is he doing with his methods? But first of all, let's get to know Jacob just a little bit. We don't have time to, to read the whole account, whole account. But as I mentioned before, his name tells us something about his character. His name, which means one who literally who grasps the heel, came out of, out of the womb after his brother Esau immediately afterwards. And this this image where he's holding on to his brother, I guess, who came out first, and they give him that name. How would you like that name? It means deceiver. It means one who deceives, one who grasps the heel as an idiom for that picture of deceiver. And so he follows in that case, and his life is characterized by deception, by cunning, by using his ability to get what he wants done and what he'd accomplished. 
He has cheated his brother out of his birthright. He had cheated his father with the help of his mother, the blessing that came from there. And he had left and been forced out as a result of this, his actions. His brother was angry at him and threatened to, to kill him. There was great tension and conflict. His relationship with Esau, who was the elder brother by a few minutes, came out first. But then the promise that we're told is that Jacob would be the one that received the blessing. He's the one that this blessing would be passed from Abraham to Isaac and on to him, not to the oldest. And that was by God's design. He would choose him for this case, except his life doesn't necessarily look like one. It's not occasioned by one who really seems to be following God in this case. And so for 20 years, he's been gone. 20 years, he's left fear of his life getting away from Esau. And he, 20 years, he goes to the land of, his, of Rebekah's land. And, and there he, he meets his, to be his father-in-law. And it's there that he really comes face to face with, with uh, the king of cheaters, with the person that he bests, uh, that he comes to, who's able to deceive even better than he himself. And that's Laban to be his father-in-law. And the storyline, if you remember it, he wants to marry Rachel. And so for seven years, he works to receive Rachel's hand in marriage. And yet, if you read, the, the, the text is quite interesting. And lo and behold, he wakes up the next morning and he finds he's been given Leah. And, and Laban says, oh, by the way, I didn't tell you this, but we don't give the younger before the elder. So you get Leah first. And if you want to work another seven years, then you can have Rachel. And, of course, he works another seven years. So another seven years of free labor, essentially for Jacob and to get a second wife. And of course, if you read the story, you find that he also cheated him in lots of other ways uh, in reference to his um, salary and payment and all those kinds of things in livestock. Essentially, Jacob learns what honesty looks like by working for a deceiver. We learn about his life. He's, he's, of course, alienated from Esau, alienated eventually from Laban, his father-in-law. God tells him at this point in time, you need to return now to the land. You've been gone. I want you to go back and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this. But as he returns, we get this story. He's, he, he's come to this point. He's got his wife, wives. He's got his, his, his sons, has all of his livestock. And here he finds himself at this river ford. He's there at the crossing of it. And some of them are on the other side. And he's on one side. And he's there by himself. And he sent folks ahead to Esau. He's wondering, I wonder what these 20 years have done to Esau. What? Has it done to our relationship? So he sends people ahead just to warn Esau, hey, Jacob's coming. He's bringing a bunch of stuff with him, really cool stuff he's going to give to you. And he wonders what the response, and the response he gets is, yeah, Esau's coming, and he's bringing 400 men with him. Yes, he's coming after you, but he's coming 400, with 400 men. Of course, at this point earlier in the chapter, we see that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Of course, why else would he bring, be bringing 400 people? This was the average size of a militia. Was he coming to do damage to him, to destroy him, to exact on him the revenge that he had sought to have for so many years? And so Jacob finds him here wondering what's going to happen. And the, the, the count before in our passage, he, he divides his, his group into two and kind of to cut his losses in case that he does attack. He prays to God and says, Lord, you're the one that promised this offspring and a seed, and yet I don't know if that's going to last, so coming to you. And then he has this whole kind of plan of appeasement. He takes all these, the livestock he has, and he puts them up in waves, and so many sheep and goats and camels and I don't know what else, and they, he sends them in waves to Esau. As Esau's coming with his militia, that he would receive these gifts, and they would say to him, your servant 
Jacob has a gift for you. Receive it from him. And your servant Jacob has a gift for you. Receive it in in an attempt to appease Esau. So maybe when he shows up, he's not quite so angry. And so that brings us to this scene that we have. It's here. It's a fascinating one. If you read it, as you read through it, it's, there's a lot of dramatic effect that's built in. There's a lot that's not told to us. There's a lot of surprises. Even as you begin to read it, you find that he begins to wrestle with someone that we don't know. And so you go, what's going on here? There's naming going on. There's blessing going on. There's miraculous kind of dis- disabling of him going on. And so it's it's a fascinating passage, and here we have Jacob, and the text sets it up for us. If you were in a movie, you could paint the picture, right? It's dark. All of his wives, his wives and children, and everything he has is on the other side of the river. They've crossed the boundary into the land, and here he is. He's alone in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And then we have this statement, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. He's alone. He's by himself. It's certainly a dramatic picture. It's also a theological one that that God has something that he's going to do in his life. And so he's separated him. He's isolated him for that purpose. Others have speculated that that he stayed alone by himself because he thought maybe he would be able to engage Esau on his own. That he could engage him on his own and and maybe be able to forego any damage. And so he was intending maybe that he could do that. And take care of that situation. We're not sure if that's the case or not, but regardless, the person he came in contact with was not the one he was expecting to come in contact with. And so we have this very cryptic, mysterious verse here, right? A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. We're not told who the man is. We don't even know why they're wrestling. What's the point? What's going on? What's happening here? We don't know, but it just says there's a great ambiguity, great kind of suspense for the reader to go. Somebody shows up, initiates a wrestling match with him, and the the match lasted all night long until the breaking of day. He engages him in a wrestling match and and then it goes all night long. And then little by little, the lights come on. The sun rises and we see a little more of what's going on in Jacob's life, what God is doing in his life, who he was, who he's becoming, what's necessary to take place in order to make him to this new person that God intends him to be. And so as we look at this passage, we want to talk about the methods of God and the ends of God, what he's up to, what's his modus operandi, what is it, what is he after, what's he want to do in this person's life, in Jacob's life, and then what's, what ultimately is his end. Well, some patterns here we can see. And it should, we should note here as we look at this, patterns that can, that can refer to our life. One, that there was wrestling going on. That the man wrestled with him. Is that just strange to you? Doesn't it seem kind of odd? Here we are, he's taking a nap, he's sleeping for the night, and a guy shows up and he wrestles with him. It's a picture for us, right? It tells us something. That God engages him in a certain kind of way. He doesn't show up and say, let's play checkers. Let's play blackjack. Let's play chess. He engages him on the field of battle in a sense of of wrestling. He engages him strength to strength. That should tell us something about humanity. That tells us something about our human nature, about our fallen nature. That that when God engages us, that, that there's a wrestling match that goes on. That what we need is not just more information. 
that God, when he steps into our lives, he has to wrestle with us to tear away the things that we want to hold on to or to give us the things he wants to, that his means and his methods involve a wrestling match that goes on in our hearts and our minds and our souls, that he wrestles with us. In the same way, he engaged Jacob in his strength, his physical strength, his cunning that was real, that Jacob took great pride in. He meets him there. He engages him with that. He brings him to the end of himself. So it's perfect imagery for us, for our lives, that wrestling is the imagery for us. Physical wrestling, in his case, the imagery for us is helpful to go, yeah, I need him to engage me at this level, at my heart level, to be able to do that. And so Jacob, as he relied on his strength, God engaged him with that to divest him of that and show him the, the need for something else to happen in his life. But there's also another kind of an image we get from the text, and it has something to do with the darkness and the ambiguity of the scene. Jacob is wrestling with someone he doesn't know who. He doesn't know who his foe is. He doesn't know who he's wrestling. He doesn't necessarily even know why he's wrestling or what he's wrestling for. There's great ambiguity about this, and I don't want to go too far with this, but it's a great question to ask. Why is that? Why is there confusion here? What do we, how do we understand that? And I think... But we can draw on this in our own lives, in our own wrestling matches in our lives. There's oftentimes great confusion. There's oftentimes great hiddenness or darkness in those seasons of our lives when we wrestle. We don't even know who we're wrestling with or what we're wrestling with. But there's something going on in our soul that's there. And the darkness is there that kind of hides it. But as the lights come on, we realize what's going on. And God, by his grace, meets us and wrestles and, and reveals what's going on. A number of years ago, I can still remember when, when we were living in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was a, a season in, in my life and life, and we're about halfway through our tenure as director in the, at the University of Nebraska with Crusade. And about halfway through there, I remember kind of hitting the season of my life, and I don't know if it was a crisis, I don't know what it was, but I remember just going, I got to get out of here. I got to do something else. I got to get a real job. I got I to gotta grow up. I don't know what it was, but I hit a season in my life. It was just... I just had to get out, and so I kind of kept checking kind of courses that would kind of get me out of the situation I was in. It wasn't a bad situation, but it was time to leave or something. And so I kept kind of starting this way and that way, and every kind of way I turned, the doors would close. And I was kind of like stuck here, and I can't leave, and yet I kept trying to find a way to get out. And I still remember Kelly one day in our kind of in our living room, and she kind of looks at me in just a, the, the most innocent helpful way she asked me a very simple question that just she said by the way why do you need to leave so bad why do we need to leave so what, what, what's the point here why do you need to leave and I remember looking at it and go I don't have any idea I can't even answer your question I don't know what it is and I remember in that process and I won't give you all the details but it was a, it was a powerful time in my own life that God began to deal with struggles that were real and I didn't even realize what they were and you begin to unveil over the course of time what was going on in my life, the real struggle. And so in darkness, there's a hiddenness, there's an ambiguity that's there. And over the course of time, he steps in and wrestles with us, even though we don't know who we're wrestling with. And Jacob here, he doesn't know, is this an enemy? Is this a foe? What happens? What's his intentions? What's he up to here? What happens if he wins? What happens if I can't best this guy in this match? I'm not sure exactly what his intentions are. Are they good? And as he came to find over the course of this evening and early in the morning, come to find that, well, he's not really an enemy. 
But I tell you, his methods are much different than anybody I've ever known. His approaches and what he's after is much different than any friend I've ever had. That he would come and engage me and actually fight and do battle with me all night long. That he would wrestle with me. And he finds, as we do in the darkness, that God is wrestling and revealing himself in and through that. So we have this wrestling match. And I don't know if this fact has caught you yet. It actually took a good part of this week before it kind of... Kind of the lights went on in reading this text. You know how you can read and you just kind of go right over something. And, he, and, he, and here's a fact that just, should just astound us. That we're not reading about a metaphor here. We're reading about a real act of a real God that took on real flesh to engage a real person. To meet his deepest spiritual need at the exact point, at the exact time that he needed to be met. We have a real physical wrestling match going on that a real God did this. He condescended and the God who had made everything, who created him, set his whole plan in place, who knew Jacob, took on human form, met him there to deal with his deepest spiritual need. And that picture shouldn't surprise us because we recognize that that picture was more fully filled out even later on in Christ. But it should astound us that God wrestled with him and met him there in this physical way God will meet with us. He will wrestle with us, our hearts, our minds, our doubts, our disappointments, the sorrows we have, the things that we have that we want to get rid of, the places we want to go that God won't let us leave, the things that God wants to give us that we don't want to receive. We have to wrestle, and he wrestles with our hearts, and he brings them to submission. And that's what he does. That's his pattern. That's his method. Another thing we can see in this passage about the way God operates is as he comes to Jacob, as he comes to us, he comes with a great reserve of power, except he conceals that power in a profound way. He conceals that power so he can use it in a precise way in our lives. Because if he comes to us with all of our power, we're squashed, we're nothing. So he comes to Jacob with that power that's humbled, it's concealed, he condescends to engage him in this way. He doesn't obliterate him, but he matches him blow for blow, move for move, trick for trick, strength for strength, night throughout the entire evening. He matches him. He doesn't overcome him, and nor is he overcome in this battle that he has with him. All night he wrestles with him. Why? Again, it's again an interesting situation, but he brings him to exhaustion. He wants him to to recognize he has matched him in every way, And he's brought him to the very end of himself. No doubt Jacob has brought out the best moves he possibly could have to be able to win the battle, but he doesn't. He can't. So God matches him here. And this reserve of power is hidden. We're thankful for it. He's thankful for it in the the darkness because if he could see God, indeed, this is a protective reserve to protect him because if he could see God, he would no longer exist. But God patiently and precisely and clearly reveals himself throughout the encounter. There's no doubt by the end who he's wrestling with, right? First of all, there's this incredible, miraculous touch that he would just touch the exact point on his hip that would dislocate it and render any strength he had in wrestling completely powerless. Then we have this blessing that Jacob asks for, this clinging to this person. Then we have the wrestler changing the very name of Jacob and then, we have, and then Jacob asks the question, what's your name? Can you tell me? And the guy says, don't you know who I am? Do you really need to ask my name? And finally, you have this awareness that Jacob has seeing God face to face. 
and am I, am I alive? And so the methods of God is that he comes, he wrestles with us, he, he meets our human condition. And he's not shy. He's not powerless. He meets us strength to strength in our lives to, to bring us to the end of ourselves. He uses a reserve of power just appropriately and rightly and precisely at the right time in the right way throughout the course of the seasons of our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves. And at just the right time and the right way, God reveals himself in us in and through that work in our lives, his power. And we see, oh, this is who God is. This is who I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm wrestling with. And so his methods are, are clear. But what is he up to? He'd condescend. He would take on the form of a human to be able to, to meet our need in this profound way. And as Jacob would find that his intentions are wonderful. His methods strange. His methods interesting that he would do that. I might even say unorthodox that he would do that. But it would be methods that would be necessary to accomplish his ends. But what are the ends of God? And we can see from this, as we look at this picture, first of all, we see that the God initiates, engages his strength. And he initiates, engages his strength in order to dislocate his strength from within himself and to relocate that strength within God. He engages his strength to dislocate it. You can see the imagery here, right? In order to relocate it in God, to reorient it around God so that Jacob himself would experience the blessing of God and find a transformation that his life, his life would indeed be changed. So he engages him in the strength. Strength can be anything for him, for us that we take pride in, a gift that God has given to us, talents that we have, any abilities that we have that we can use that can be twisted and misused. For Jacob, it was his physical strength and his cunning, his ability to turn any situation in his own favor. I can twist anything. I can shift anything. I can manipulate anything by my cunning and by my strength. I can accomplish it. I can do this on my own. I don't need help. And so that was his strength. And God meets him and matches him there. And that's the critical point in his life. That's a pivotal point in his life and ours as well. But he engages that strength in order to dislocate it. He wears him all, he wrestles all night in order to wear him out, brings him to the end of himself so that he can see the merciful purpose of God. God's reserve power is seen here, right? Think about the wrestling imagery that he has. He's really wrestling. What happens at the point that that hip is dislocated? Point God touches the hip. No strength is going to do him any good now. The very core of a wrestler's strength has got to be in that core and your, your hip. And so basically it's gone. He can't do anything now. There's no strength he has. Essentially what God is saying at that point in time, he says, you're strong, but the power I have is different from yours. The power I have is not just stronger. It's different because my intentions are different from your intentions. I've matched you at your game, but my Intentions are not just to beat you at wrestling. It's not just to beat you at this game. My intentions are to change you and to bless you, to enable you to come to an understanding of your need for me in a way that you never could have imagined. And so he matches him in that battle, in that methodology, in order to help him see his need for God. It's not about winning a battle for God. It's about transforming our life. It's about blessing us with who he is. And so a single touch of the hip dislocates this power source, pivotal source of strength for him and renders any strength he had completely useless. 
And what's interesting now, we see a twist in the story. There's a number of twists you can follow from darkness to light, from Jacob to East or Jacob to Israel, but you also see that there's a shifting from a wrestler who can no longer wrestle what he does. A wrestler becomes a prayer. That one who is wrestling with God, once he can no longer wrestle, what's he end up doing? He clings to God. He recognizes his need, his great need for God. He comes to the very end of himself. He realizes this is God. And God relocates his strength, the strength back in himself and who he is. What's happened here is when his strength to engage him in, in wrestling, okay, is ended, then he must cling to him. We find that he's praying. That in this case, he, he says in verse Verse 26, then he said, let me go. The man says, let him go for the day is about broken. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so you see him clinging to him. He says, unless you bless me. And we see here a self-emptied God-dependent prayer that, that comes, that grows out of this. And out of this, we see a transformation. We see a blessing that takes place that says, as God meets him. In verse 29, at the end of this he asked him his name. What's, he says, uh, verse 29, and then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. It's interesting that in that situation, it's in this dialogue, he says, and there he blessed him. And what's the there? What, what is it in that location? Well, yeah, it's in that location. But I think even more better we understand in there, in that place that self-emptied place, that place where his own self-sufficiency was gone and now he was dependent only upon God. In that place, God is now able to bless him as he's rid himself of his own self, his strengths, and he recognizes need for God. It's in that place that we find the blessing of God. It's in that place we find him. And in this battle, in this battle, there's an interesting question that... that that I had throughout this, it is in what way and how do we understand Jacob prevailing over it? As you read through this, you see that, that the man, that this wrestler, that God could not prevail over Jacob. We see that even when the man tries to extract himself from, from, day, from uh, Jacob, that he can't. We also find at the end that the God himself says in the blessing, you have prevailed over man and God. And he asks the question, how is it that anyone, any man prevails over God. How is that even possible? How do we understand that reality that God would prevail, that man would prevail over God? Do we see any weakness or inability on God's part here? Is it, you know, that somehow he gets bested by Jacob? Do we see reluctance on his part to bless him? It's okay, I'll bless you, bless you, just let me go. No, we don't find any of that. How is it that man prevails over God? And I'll put it like this. There's probably a Many other ways to say it, but the best way I've tried to put it down into words is Jacob prevails over God in the exact way that God will be prevailed over. That Jacob prevails over God in the exact and the only way that God will be prevailed, be prevailed over. Another way to put it is that God has Jacob in the exact right place, the right position. And the position is this, right? One who's completely powerless, clinging and saying, I will not let you go. That's the position that God will be prevailed over and within. The exact place that God would have him and he brought him there. A number of years ago when I was much younger in high school and college, I used to, I, was, I played racquetball and I used to compete and travel and do tournaments and such. 
And in one tournament I, I went, there was one of the professionals, one of the, the guys who really knew how to play the game. And, and of course, at, at the, that they would have an exhibition match, and the pro would come in, and then we would take the best open players in the area, and they would play the pro. And the open players were great players. They would just wipe me out like nothing. But they, but they would play the pro, and you, you, it's always interesting to watch. How's the amateur going to do against the pro? And so they would play. And I remember the, the match. There were five games in the match. And in the very first game, the, the score was 15 to 9 at the end of the game. And when the, the amateur had scored nine points against the professional, and you go, wait a second here. This pro, he's, I mean, he gave up nine points to the amateur? Maybe this guy isn't quite what you think. And, of course, the amateur, you go, maybe he's a pretty good player. Well, then the next game came along. Interesting, same score, 15 to 9. Okay, third game came along. Same score, 15 to 9. Five games in the match. Guess what the score was in every one of the games? It was 15 to 9. And you began to go, oh, you started off wondering, maybe, maybe the pro isn't as good as you thought he was. And by the end, you realize, wait a second here, I see what's going on. And you realize the amateur was getting only the number of points the pro would want him to have. That he was prevailing on points only in the way that he would want him to. And if I can use that to bridge into this, God will allow us to prevail over him only in the way that he wants to be prevailed over As we look at this, we see something shifting, something taking place in and through Jacob's life, through this wrestling match that helps us understand this prevailing situation for Jacob. See, Jacob is brought to a point in his life where his awareness of his greatest need matches God's greatest desire to give to him that. You get that? That Jacob is brought through the methods of God to the point where his awareness of his greatest need matches God's greatest desire for him. What God wants to give him is the exact same thing that Jacob wants at this point. It's himself. That God would give him what he would want, but he would be brought to the point where he would want, at the end, God himself. That he would desire him. That he'd be willing to give up his own methods to be able to take him. That God's methods ultimately would transform our self-sufficiency and self-centered desires into God-centeredness, into God-centered desires, God-dependent desires, such that we would want him more than anything else that he could give to us. And so in this account, we see this shift, that what God is doing is dislocating his strength, and he, and he allows Jacob to prevail in this, this way. So, so Jacob asked me, would you bless me? And you got to ask, what's the blessing there that he wants? He's got a ton of stuff. He's got goats and camels and Wives and kids and all kinds of stuff. But what else could he want? Does he want protection? Well, yeah, I'm sure he wants protection from Esau. But I think at this point is he's come face to face with God and he's still alive. That that's not a deal either. That's not the issue either. He doesn't want even protection. He comes to the point as God meets him here that he wants God alone. That he would want the strength that God would give him as his strength is dislocated now from himself. He realizes, I have no strength. The only strength that I will have is connected with you. And so this blessing is connected with relationship with God and the strength that passes through him. It's reoriented his strength from around himself, reoriented in, this, in relationship to God. And a hunger for God has been awakened at this pivotal point in his life and in, through this wrestling match. 
But there's also a transformation that's taking place. It's begun, will continue in his life. And we see that in the, in the imagery of getting a new name. And there's only one person in the Bible that, that changes names, and we know who that is. But in this case, we see that Jacob is given a new name, and the person, God, we come to find out, asks him, what is your name? Now, it's always interesting when God asks a question, right? When he asks a question, he's not trying to get information. He's trying to do something in the one that's being asked the question. He says, what's your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. What he says is, I'm confessing here. I'm deceiver. Yeah. My whole life has been described and defined by my name. Yes, I know that. That's who I am. You ask the question, that's the answer. But he says, your name, you shall no longer be called. It shall no longer be said of you, deceiver. It shall no longer be said of you, Jacob, one who uses tricks and cunning to, and your own strength and manipulation to get your own way. It shall no longer be said, you'll be called that. You will be called Israel. You'll be called one who wrestles and prevails over God. But the prevailing over God is not prevailing by your own strength. It's prevailing by his strength. By, in, and through you, reoriented now in relationship to him, not to you, divested of your own strength, your own ability, and now grounded in who he is and what he will do through you. That's the transformation process. You will be prevailer. Bruce Walke writes, now he prevails with God. His ambition to prevail has not been changed, okay? He still wants to win. He still wants to prevail, but it's been properly oriented now around God and his relationship with him. And it reminds us of the words that Dave read in, our, in, our, in the worship service from 2 Corinthians 12. As Paul comes to grips with this thorn in the flesh that God has given to him. And Jesus himself says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul concludes that, that section. He says, he writes, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. I'm content with whatever you will give me that I don't want. I'm content with whatever I might want that you won't give me. I'm content with whatever, however you want to orchestrate things because I realize that when I'm weak, it's when, that's when I'm strong. I can rest in your grace because it's then in my weakness that it's seen to be powerful. So in this case, the struggle of a lifetime has culminated in a wrestling match initiated by God as he steps in this reserve of power to meet him in the exact right way, the right time, his methods strange, yes, but his methods able to get into his life, to reveal his need and to dislocate his strength from himself and to relocate it in the very person of God such that his whole desire would be shifted and changed to receive a blessing, that he clings to him, he doesn't wrestle with him any longer. He says, will you bless me? And his name is changed and there's transformation that takes place there. That self-sufficiency is dislocated and turns into God dependency as we see that. That's the methods of God. That's the ends of God is to transplant that. And somehow wrestling is necessary to do that. Don't you wish it wasn't? Don't you wish it would be easy just to give up areas of our lives and give them to him? I wish it were easy. It is not. And so God meets us and matches us and says, I will do whatever it takes. Even wrestle you if that's what it takes to demonstrate my strength in your life and the necessity of that. I'm grateful he'll go to all great extent necessary to do that. There's a final point here I want to bring up. 
And the story ends with another surprise. We've got a number of surprising, the the strange person wrestling, the all-night kind of thing, God being prevailed upon, names being changed, blessings being given. But then we have in verse 31 an interesting kind of synopsis, summary of this conclusion, maybe is a better word. The sun rose upon him and he passed as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Huh. He wrestles with God, it's out of joint, and now as he walks away, he's limping. There's a a mark that's been left on him. And we learn later on, right, it's a mark that's left. It stays so much so that Jerusalem, the whole of Israel has to kind of figure out what to do with that and have their own kind of rituals to deal with it. But but he limps. There's a mark that's left. We see in this the, the mercy of God and severe mercy of God in and through this situation. See, the freshly blessed and newly named and transformed patriarch walks away differently than he'd walked before. He walks away a different person, no doubt. He has changed. He has transformed. But the process has begun. But... He also walks differently. The way that he moves now, dare say he'll probably never wrestle again. That the mark that was left on him that was seen in in this wrestling match that would bring him under submission, that would open his eyes to see who God was, to come to really know him, would leave a mark on him that would last him the rest of his life. Of course, even pain would be associated with that. So we see him walking away. If you picture this, right? Jacob, for the rest of his life, would be marked. It would remind him, the way that he walked would remind him of the blessing that he received, the new name that he had received. And the limp was a glorious and concrete reminder of God's mercy to him. He's still alive. He's not dead, but he's limping. And that limp is a picture of that, of that, that mark that God had left on him, the transforming grace, but also his severe mercy. He walked away, he limped away, a new man as a result of that, but it had affected him. Paul's experience is similar, right, with the the thorn in the flesh that God says, this is necessary for you. We don't understand that, that God would say, yeah, this is necessary, that you're going to live with this, whatever that is. But it's the same or similar, at least for each one of us. You're going to live with this, and that's because in and through this mark I'm going to place on you, will be the thing that reminds you that your dependence, that locating your strength and dependence ultimately in Christ alone will be what will be necessary to live and to truly do that. And so Jacob would be a walking parable of strength and weakness. And this is a posture of a saint, that there are marks that are left on us because of our struggling with God, because his wrestling with us by his grace. Two things to conclude and try to wrap this up. There's much more in this picture than I really even know how to kind of unpack. But first of all, I think it's important to see that God's intentions, his ways are much different from ours. That even as Jacob was wrestling with him and he was wondering what's going to happen in this wrestling match. And he finds him not to be an enemy, but not to be like any friend that he had encountered. That God's methods, his ways are so much different from ours. They would leave a mark that he could have undone. The marks left on us in our struggle with God, God wrestling with us, are many. They're physical, relational, emotional, maybe financial. There's many different ways that we are marked by our struggle with God. He purposefully, graciously, and providentially leaves those there. 
so that we will be reminded of it. And in some way, although we don't completely understand it, that it's necessary for our sanctification, that those marks that he leaves on our lives, on our souls, if you will, as we walk around to the rest of our lives, the reminder, I'm still alive in this, is a work of his grace in me. That at that moment in time, yes, I have a limp, but I know God. In and through that circumstance, that situation, I've come to know him in a way that I couldn't have known him if that mark had not been there. It becomes a reminder for us. But we also need to be reminded of this, that the God who humbled himself, who took on the very form of a man and wrestled with Jacob, we find the rest of that story who would take on the form of a man, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, would become man, the God-man, who would step into our situation at just the right time and just the right way, take on the weakness of humanity, and he would bear marks. I don't know if it's caught you. It's struck me that the marks that Christ has were upon his resurrection body. And those marks he will have on that resurrection body for all of eternity. And those marks are a reminder of the battle that he did on our behalf. The reminder that he took the place of us. That he raged that battle that he took and absorbed the very wrath of God, completely submitting to his Father's will, that he struggled on our behalf. And as a result, there's marks that he had. Because of those marks, we know what it really means to be blessed by God, to know God. We know what it means to have our names changed and to be transformed as a result of that, those marks that he took for us. And it also gives meaning to the marks that we carry with. Yes, he's doing something in our lives. So God's intentions, we look at the story, his methods are many. His methods ultimately are to bring about, to take that strength that we think we have, to dislocate it and relocate it in relationship with him, to orient around our relationship with him and who he is. And that in our struggles, we have struggled. Many of us here are now struggling. Encouragement is he will do whatever it takes. He will not be prevailed over but only in the way that he desires to be in and through our submission in and through our desire to know him. And the beauty is what he will do is, is actually change and shape us so that we will want what he wants to give us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. You don't come and play chess or checkers with us, but you come and you wrestle our hearts. That you meet us right at the point of need in those pivotal points in our lives. And you you say, yes, I know you're strong, but I'm stronger. I can best you, but what I most want to do is bless you and change you. And so we come to you today and ask, would you do that? Would you bless us with the knowledge of who you are? Would you continue to subdue our hearts? Would you continue to wrestle with each one of us, the many in this room, no matter what might be going on in our lives, to, to give up or to receive what it is that you have for us? And in and through that and the marks that we carry with us to know you, to know the blessing that comes from knowing you. And so we ask that you would do that. Help us to orient your strength, um, our strength around you. Many needs, Father, I pray for these. I ask that you would be at work. I think of the McFeeters family and the loss of Priscilla's father. And um, as they grieve, I pray that you would comfort them and all of them. Pray for Jim Van as he recovers, continue to be with him, be with Bill and Karen in Pittsburgh and, and as they care for Sarah and, and Damon there and, and just uh, uh, 
encourage them and, and prepare them for the uh, birth and uh, delivery of this new child. Pray for Steve and Emma and continue to pray for the development of little Asa in their lives. Father, many missionaries, many people I'd like to pray for as well. I pray for Leanne Dole and ministry in through her. I pray for the ministries on campus here at KU with the students back, NAVs and um, crew and, and many others. Um, be with them and, and, and use them in the lives of the students, the OC. So give them strength as well today. Father, help us to walk today um, in the power of your spirit, knowing that you've met us and that you'll continue to meet us in the way that we most need. In Jesus' name we pray.